We're back. Thank you, back. Hey, friends! You're listening to Life in Theater, the podcast where theater people of all kinds come to reconnect with why we chose this life in theater and spill the tea. On this show, we discuss their careers, what they wish they knew when they were starting, current theater culture where they would like to see this art form go in the future, and much, much more. I'm your host, Tyler Calhoun, and I'm so, so happy that you decided to spend some time with me today. Hey friends, did you miss me? Well, I missed you, and that is the freaking truth. I'm really sorry that this episode took longer to get out than I anticipated, I am, you know, making some changes in my life to take better care of myself. And, you know, time's got to be made for that. It's got to be a priority, right? I know at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were doing more things to take care of themselves, like yoga, going for walks, getting into an exercise regimen, eating healthier, whatever it may be. I was also one of those people. However, as time went on and the conditions got worse with winter, and as I experienced some significant challenges, a lot of that just went out the window. I share this in case anyone else is going through something similar. You know, it's never too late to start taking care of yourself. It's never too late to take on another try at replacing bad habits with positive ones. And it's never too late to start therapy, right? (laughs) Another concept that reminds me of the beginning of the pandemic is the concept of the new normal and getting back to normal. Well, some folks like to think that we are starting to get back to normal. I don't know how I feel about that so much. I remember a year ago, So many voices, especially young voices, saying how they never want to go back to normal again. At least not normal how we knew it. How we want something better, something more equitable, economically just, and fair for people who have been traditionally marginalized or left out altogether. I hope people haven't lost sight of that because that takes work. And here we are, in the space to do that necessary work. And someone who has been doing that work and fighting the fight since the beginning of his career is this week's guest. It is the incredible Jose Casas. Jose is a playwright, director, and actor originally from California. He's an assistant professor and leads the playwriting minor in the Department of Theater and Drama at the University of Michigan. He also serves on the board of the Children's Theater Foundation of America and is a member of the American Alliance of Theater and Education, TYA USA, and the Dramatists Guild. His plays include The Vine, 14, La Ofrenda, JJ's Place, A Million Whispers in the Wind, Somebody's Children, Pedro E. El Lobo, and Flint. I met Jose back in 2017 at TYAUSA's One Theater World Conference in San Francisco. I was one of the Colleen Tui Porter apprentices. Yes, shout out to the Colleen Tui Porter apprentices for making it happen. Yes, we sure did. And I was working for a theater company called Spinning Doc. My artistic director, Jenny Capera, suggested that I try to connect with Jose at the conference as he was moving to Michigan soon to teach playwriting. I remember meeting Jose at the conference and was just stunned because he's the kind of guy that not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. And that was evident the first time that I met him. 
I've got so much respect for this artist. And honestly, I really can't wait for you to learn a little bit about him and the excited things that he's got going on. So without further delay, enjoy the episode, my friends. Oh, and before I forget, because I feel really bad about delaying this episode, I'm going to be offering something to my Patreon subscribers that's exclusively available to you. Yes, you, for free. So stay tuned at the end of this episode to find out what it is. So thank you so much, Jose Casas, for joining me on this episode of Life in Theater. You are the coolest playwright that I know, and having some time to talk with you is so cool. Oh, I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And humble, too. (laughs) Just a little. Just a little. (laughs) So would you mind starting off by just telling the listeners what it is that you do in theater in your own words? Right now, what I do in theater is um, I'm a playwright, director, and I'm also an assistant professor in the Department of Theater Drama at the University of Michigan, where I also lead the minor in playwriting that I created a few years ago. And I'm also an advocate for the field of theater for young audience in particular when it comes to issues of diversity, inclusivity, equitability. And another letter I think we need to add to that, what do they call those synonyms or acronyms or whatever? Yes. We need to add R for representation. Because a lot of people in our our field don't understand that there's power in seeing someone who looks like you, whether it's on that stage or in that play or in that school curriculum. And and there isn't. And so we need to add the R as well. So absolutely. Oh, I love that. Let's add the R in (laughs) y'all. Right on. To take it back a little bit. Can you describe why you decided to get into theater in the first place or what drew you to it? Yeah, well, you know, it was accidental. I mean, my whole life I wanted to be a lawyer and a politician. Mm -hmm. And wow. I want to be like a persecutor or, or, a, or a public defender. And I dreamt of becoming the first Chicano governor of California. Yes. And so I went to UC Santa Barbara, which was a couple hours north of where I grew up. And it was at that point the farthest north I'd ever been in my life. And UCSB is a lot of rich white kids going to school there because it's literally on the beach. So it never took me more than five minutes to get from my living room to the ocean. Yeah. Which was nice. I was a little spoiled in that way. And so if you had told me I'd be a drama major, when I graduated, I would have laughed in your face because I didn't know theater. And the only arts I knew what was ever on TV or at the movies. I didn't really have an idea of what arts meant. Yeah. And I got disillusioned with law because everyone wanted to be like an entertainment lawyer or a, or a corporate lawyer. I'm like, what about justice and freedom? And no one really seemed to be on that. And so through English classes uh, that were requirements, especially short story, I started writing and my teacher's like, yo, you're pretty good. I'm like, whatever. And even my friends were like, dude, I think you might've found something. I'm like, whatever. But about a year and a half later, I'm like, you know what, maybe so. And what kind of clinched it for me in terms of writing was I was taking a class called AIDS and Immunology. And this is 1989. Yeah. And so for those who are around in 1989, AIDS and HIV, it was a totally different world. I mean, in some ways it was kind of like the pandemic now, Right. the fear and the ignorance And I have plenty of friends who died and watching them waste away. And back then, if you even diagnosed with HIV, it was a death sentence. Yeah. You know, and so um, I was taking this class and we had to do a final paper. And um, and we we had a great teacher, like from any perspective you're going to write about. And which was funny. And this is why I feel like drama chose me and not the other way around was I wrote a one man play about this dude in his last year of life with HIV and AIDS. Wow. And I'd never even seen a play before. I didn't know what a play was, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to play. Yeah. And so I remember uh, we were taking our finals and I turned in my final and there's still a bunch of students taking the test. 
and my teacher uh, looks at me. She's like, Jose, why did you decide to apply? I'm like, well, you know, wanted to get the human aspect. And she starts to cry, ball in front of the whole class. And I'm like, oh, shit. And uh, <laughs> my captain's like, what did you do? Dude, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and she was so moved by that that she made a copy for her daughters as well as every professor in the biology department. Oh, my God. And she asked me, you know, what's your major again? I'm saying like, well, it's poli sci pre-law. She's like, um, if you've learned anything in my classes that you're a writer. And so the next day, my friends, uh, we did a little ceremony. I put drama and English in a hat. And I said, whichever one I pick out, I'm going to change to. And I picked out drama. Oh, my God. And the rest is history. But you know what? Since most of my work is TYA, you know, when I went to Arizona State for playwriting, and then they have a really good TYA program, my friends in the program were all like, you need to write for us. And I'm like, fuck that shit. I'm a real playwright. I don't write for kids. Uh, And so they finally nagged me to death to the point where I wrote like a hip hop musical spoken word breakdancing kind of joint that was was off the chart, man. It was pretty badass. Oh, my God. And it was fun, too. And I'm like, okay, cool. I did it. And I wasn't planning to do more TYA. But then another theater like, hey, we'll pay you. I'm like, well, I need money. All right. But then eventually I started drinking the Kool-Aid and realizing how much I enjoyed writing for that. Mm-hmm. And when I'm writing for that, I'm writing for my nephews and nieces and my friends and their kids. And I realized that youth audience was the most important audience. Yeah. And what I like about writing for youth is I also feel this extra level of responsibility for the art I create. Yeah. And so that's what got me into TYA playwriting and I've never looked back and I love it. You know, it's a way of, of and I hate when people say, let's give voice to communities. It's like, Everyone has a voice. You can't give something to someone they already have, but you can encourage them to say, you do have a voice. Don't be afraid to use it. And in our country, especially, yeah. we don't look at youth the way other places in the world do. We, we look down on them or we dumb up TYA. It's like, no, they have their voices just as important as any other voice. And so that's what drew me to TYA. So like I said, that's how I jumped into the rabbit hole. I love it. Honestly, that sounds like a play in and of itself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe. It's so cool. It's got so many like dramatic elements, but like cool things that you've done with your life. Like, I mean, I don't know that many people that would just like take the risks that you did and land kind of in the most like perfect world for yourself. Well, you know what? The thing is, you know, like I said, there's not a lot of money in this business. Right. It literally was probably 15 years after even graduating where at one point during the year, especially during the fall, I'm like, man, should I go to law school? Like I, you know, yeah. And it's funny because I just got a letter from today uh, from one of my ex-students, musical theater person who said he's quitting theater and going to law school. And he just got into Berkeley in Michigan today. (laughs) Oh, wow. And so, but I I did realize at a certain point that the reasons why I wanted to be a lawyer, I'm doing it. It's just in theater. It's just not in law. But the reasons behind wanting to go down that path, I'm still doing, you know? Yeah. Definitely. You brought up something specific to in terms of how other countries view theater for young audiences compared to um, the United States and how we treat it. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit more for listeners that might be unfamiliar? Yeah, no, they respect kids. I'm really... <laughs> you know, they don't treat them as, as, as kids. They don't treat them as small individuals. They, cons- yeah. they, they treat them as equals. Yeah. And so those countries, you know, I mean, and, you know, with Spinning Dot you know, the premise of that theater is, is the same way. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, the subject matters that they deal with are real. They're real to adults and they're real to kids. And I think that's important because kids have to find different ways of, of digesting what they see in the world and what better than theater to do it. Yeah. You know, and 
um, a lot of theater here, they dumb it down or they just want to protect kids. But I think in the process, they do them a disservice because it seems like every theater is doing the Velveteen Rabbit or Junie B. Jones. And there's not nothing, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, one of my bucket list plays I still want to see is You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> yes. It's not that there's anything wrong. You just think about it like the food pyramid. Yeah. The stuff that they have, it's like you're just feeding kids candy and sugar. Mm-hmm. Where's the protein? Where's the vegetables? Where are the things that really are going to sustain them? You know? And I remember when the shooting a few years ago, I want to say Parkland, the high school in Florida, yep. I believe. And they were in the Florida Senate and they were debating like laws surrounding that shooting. And one of the, politicians she's like oh well if kids want to do anything should we listen to them if they don't want homework should we say okay no homework and one of her colleagues like if a kid is old enough to get shot they're old enough to have an opinion and and that's true and and you know kids are more resilient than we give them credit for and in this country we don't we don't do that you know we don't yeah we don't give them that and and then you had like the powers that be that want to produce theater and they're she's like well we can't show a play about that we'll never make any money we know we'll make money with Junior B. Jones. I'm like, yeah. you know, I'm not going to necessarily argue that point, but you, you still have a responsibility to figure out how to do it. And, you know, even with the play I'm going to write for the anthology, I don't know if anyone's going to want to do it. Like I said, a 10 year old who's, who's, who's dealing with mental health. Yeah. You know, but I still feel that I need to do it because like I said, you know, they're our future. Yeah. And in those other countries, like I said, they believe that, you know, it's, it's, it's also ritual where the elders are sharing that information with the youngsters and, and we don't do that. Yeah. And even in this country, take away theater, you see that this country doesn't respect their elders the way, you know, the way other countries do. I mean, and the pandemic is a really good example of that where it's like, fuck, they're old, you know, what's the big deal? Right. There was a lot of that, you know, we're young, you know? Yeah. And so TY is also in some ways, like I said, intergenerational, we don't have it as much and we need to. Yeah. And like I said, and we need to, we need to kick the shit out of the, the gatekeepers who aren't allowing that, you know, but we'll see what happens, you know, and, and, and I begin, I think it all begins in, in the educational field. Cause that's where everyone comes yeah, from. Yeah, totally. You know, and they have to motivate students to want to go into those programs and then go out into the theaters as practitioners or administrators or even scholars, right. you know, for the African-American anthology that I'm working on. Three of the scholars were like, are you sure you want us in this book? We're not published yet. We don't have tenure. And I'm like, yo, that's not an indication of your intelligence. That's an indication of the system. So fuck those assholes. If this book is your first publication, then we're celebrating that shit. But, you know, in the African-American anthology, we have 10 plays and eight chapters of scholarship. I haven't been able to find scholarship exploring African theory anywhere. So now to have a book with eight chapters of it. Wow. You know, you know, and with this book and the other Latinx books I've done, this isn't a, oh, hey, hi, look at us. It's no, fuck you, look at us. Yes. You know, it is. And, 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 and we have to continue to say fuck you to this field until they start saying, hey, these people are getting kind of pissed. Yeah. You know, and they should, and they need to start looking into the mirror and, and checking their privilege and really like saying, trying to change that paradigm because the, my generation, the generations before us, we fucked it up for the future generations. So we have to leave with them some tools mm-hmm. to actually hope to try to combat these issues. And what this country also doesn't do with TYA, it doesn't realize that. And there's study upon study that show that people, kids who get arts training are do much better in terms of jobs and education and, and skills. Cause it's not just theater. It's we're giving them tools to problem solve, to have empathy, yeah. do all these other things to at least their imagination. Yeah. And so, like I said, that's unfortunately, that's why this country is so far behind and, and we need to catch up, yeah. you know, and not just in terms of theater, just in terms of just our youth. You know what I mean?
Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And I love the way that you described the books that you're working on as, you know, not like a, hey, look at us. This is what we're into. It's like, no, fuck you. This is what it is. It's really carving your way in because that space has not been made. Exactly. And even for these books, me and my co-editors, we kind of look at it as like, oh, we're not doing a book where this is service to our communities. It really is. And like after these two books, because they're a pain in the ass to create, dude, they are. I, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, and and uh, one of my uh, professors from UT Austin, Coleman Jennings, who just passed. Yeah. And I'm in his last anthology. He's like, yo, the books are the easy parts of dealing with personalities. That sucks. It's going to be 100% more. But, you know, I'm a playwright. And so I want to write more plays. Great. I don't want to do any more, at least for a long time, any more of these books, because the idea is also to inspire scholars. Yeah. You know, so for the next Latinx one, I hope it's a Latinx scholar who takes over. Yeah. For the African-American one, I already said this is the only one I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I've, I've built a relationship with dramatic publishing and opened the door a little. Yeah. But we need black scholars doing these books. And if me opening up a little bit, then that's cool. But I'm not going to continue to do anthologies about this community. Right. You know, and even for this book, there's no way I was going to do it by myself, because even though the Latinx community and African-American communities share a lot of the same issues, we're still different. Yeah. And, and so for me to keep on doing this would be almost appropriation. Yeah. And that's not what it's about. It's just about opening the door, like, okay, Dramatic Publishing or these other publishers, you need to continue to, to let African-American scholars do this work. It's imperative to our field, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think more people doing exactly what you're doing, where it's opening the door and helping, you know, contributing, not feeling like you have to carry everything yourself, you know? But yeah, more of that would be amazing. From everybody, you know, we can all collaborate together. We can help each other. Exactly, dude. Exactly. Right? So I want to talk about these books a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit about them and what we can expect from them? Yeah. The the Latinx one, it's actually a second volume. Um, The book is called Palabras del Cielo, which means words from heaven. Mm -hmm. An exploration of Latina, Latino, TYA. And so with that one, it was really about, you know, like I said, this is us. So it had 10, no, 12 plays and six chapters of scholarship. Wow. And I'm actually probably more proud of the scholarship than the plays because I'm a playwright, so I'm used to it. Yeah. But seeing six brown professors writing about our field was amazing. And 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 I, we didn't write them as books. We, we, we wrote them as resources. Yeah. And, and so we did that in the second volume. We're concentrating more on um, on on the playwrights. Mm-hmm. And so we have 15, hopefully 16, if we could fit it in. And out of those 16 plays, nine are unpublished, which is unusual for an anthology. Yeah. But we're like, there's a reason. And so even for that book, I'm addressing this idea of access. Yes. You know, there's nine plays in this book that are published, but there are also nine plays in this book that should be published. Yeah. And that's yeah. the whole idea. And so with the African-American one, the title of that book is going to be Every Great Dream, Visioning African-American Theater for Young Audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, like I said, eight chapters of scholarship plus 10 plays. And it's the point of creating these voices for the field. And the sad thing is with the Latinx book, with the African-American book, this these two are the first major explorations of TYA in those communities. It's what, fucking 2021? Yeah. Really? Really? And then when they do the first Asian one, it'll be the first. The first indigenous one, it'll be the first. Yeah. It's, 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 there's no, there's, you know, it's not right. Right. You know, it shouldn't be the first. So um, it really is about crowding resources for theaters, for educational systems, especially higher education. Yeah. And like I said, it's about representation and seeing yourselves 
in 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 that book yeah and and validating and celebrating our stories as well but also not needing to justify that they should be done you know right and you know and that the field has to change the way they look at that so for example i'm sick and tired of fucking theaters tell me yo say first of all do you know any good playwrights and i'm like um fuck you but secondly, it's like, yo, that's not my job. Right. And if you want people to do that for you, then you pay them. Yeah. You yeah. know, but it's this mentality like every few years we'll do the black play or the Asian play or the brown play. It's like, no, you need to build relationships with communities. Yes. If you don't do that, you're never going to get anywhere. And and we see that in all these theaters across the country, you know, that don't know how to build long lasting permanent relations with their yeah. communities. And that's where, like I said, one of the changes we have to see is the building of those communities and not just tokenism. Yes. You know, like I said, you know, one of the things that people ask me is like, you know, Jose, what can we do to change the shit? I'm like, hire people, motherfucker. <laughs> and it's that simple. Right. It really is that first step. And then they don't. And they're like, well, Jose, what can we do? My motherfucker already told you. You need to hire people. Like I said, in, in education, there are no people of color teaching TYA yeah. for the most part. You need to hire people. You know, theaters need to hire, gen- you know, you know, artistic directors, managing directors. And we're seeing it in adult theater through the pandemic. We need to see it a little bit more with TYA. But we have seen, I have to admit, as the pandemic, I've seen more turnover in terms of people of color getting into these positions because of what's happening during the pandemic. So that's a, a first good step. Right. Yeah. It's like keep it going, you know. And you I know? love that you brought up compensation and long-term relationships because it shouldn't just be bringing in somebody to do their play and then that relationship dies like absolutely not if you want to respect these cultures if you want to represent these stories if you want to amplify these experiences then you need to be invested yeah it's not just a it's not a money grab it's not a make us look good do the work you know what i mean support the people and stand by it You have used your talents as a playwright and, you know, your opportunities to work on some really important pieces that shed light on topics that some people may not be familiar with, but that are very important. Two plays that I'm talking about specifically are Flint and 14, those ethnographic pieces that you've written. I would love it if you could share a little bit about the pieces themselves and what the process was like for you working on them. Yeah. 14 was written in 2003, right when I was close to graduating from um, Arizona State. And I was thinking, okay, shit, I'm going to graduate. What's going to be my first play post-graduation? And I remember watching the news one day and 14 Mexican nationals who had died all in the same place. I remember on the news, the helicopter view and seeing the bodies there. I'm like, that could have been my cousin. That could have been my father. My father was undocumented. Um, That could be one of my friends. That's bullshit. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do an ethnographic piece. And then uh, the Chicano Studies Department at ASU found out and they're like, you know, and I went and I applied for a grant for like, we'd like to basically commission that play. So you never really see academic departments commissioning a play. No, that's cool. And so I did that and uh, and did a bunch of different interviews dealing with race. But in that process, a bunch of different issues came out, you know, identity, economics, all this stuff. And um when it was said and done, about 50% of it was actual dialogue and 50% was fictionalized. But every monologue was either based on a real person or a real incident or both. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it, it did with, you know, like like uh, immigration policy and all these things. So, you know, even though it started off about these 14 people died and we talk about them, some of the monologues, other monologues deal with an actor who's biracial 
um, and struggling to be an actor because he's biracial. Yeah. You know, another one is about a woman whose son died in an auto accident. And she tells a story about her, her son and stuff. And, and you don't find out until the end that the reason she's so upset is because uh, the kid who killed her husband was being chased by the cop was an illegal alien. You know, another piece is about a, a, a Latino who's a, a state senator yeah. and feels like, you know, it's unfair that he's been cast as a, as an Uncle Tom because he's doing something. And he's like, yo, I'm not that stereotypical gangbanger who's killed people. Right. I'm an educated man. I mean, so why are you treating me like I was that gangbanger? So there's so many nuances to that. And so that's actually been my most produced play. Yeah. At this point, Flint is really important because um, as we were talking about theaters and building relationships, just like in Michigan here, I'm like, you know what? We have a commitment to our neighbors and the neighborhood in which we live in. And even though Flint is an hour away, it's still our neighborhood. Yeah. And um, it happened, the, the the inspiration was I was applying for the job here in Michigan uh, while I was still a, a graduate student in Austin. And I still haven't finished the degree at Austin. I still have one more year. Really? Yeah, but I got the job here. I want to finish it, but I, never, I, don't have, I don't have time and money to finish it, but I want to get the degree. I utilize so much of what I learned anyway. Yeah. And so I found out about this. I'm like, oh, this is fucked up, man. You know, what's happening? And yeah. then the thing that kind of really got me over was when I heard stories of Latinos not taking their kids to get water or get their the blood tested for lead because they were afraid to get deported. I'm like, oh, fuck, now my people too? Oh, hell no. Yeah. But I made a conscious effort to say that if I get the job, I will, I will go for it. If not, I'm not going to be in California or in Texas come here for a couple of weeks and then write a play about it. Because I know yeah. a few plays written about Flint for people who have never even been there. I'm like, yeah. fuck that shit. Ain't going to happen. And, and, you know, it was an ethnographic play, but I didn't know how much would be how much so I let the process tell me. Yeah. And so I spent about a year just talking to people and trying to build trust, not even working on the play. And then I started talking to people and it was, it was amazing. It was, it was one of the hardest plays to do. And even right now I've actually done a few more interviews. So I'm going to, by the summer, I'll have a final draft that I want to send out to theaters. Oh, wow. But um, I realized in the process, this isn't a play about lead and pipes. This is a play about racism. Yeah. And the decades and decades of institutional racism that allowed this to happen in the first place. Yeah. And 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 so it's been very close to my heart to the point where even um, another side project, I'm going to start with one of my, my classmates from Texas. We're going to write a horror film inspired by what happened in Flint. Oh, really? Yeah. And for me, too, also as a professor, how can we use this with our students and to educate our students? You know, and, and, and with this play, it's 100 percent verbatim. Yeah from the people and then some from public records, but it's a hundred percent verbatim. Yeah. And I'm like, there's one more interview I'm trying to get. And he said he would, but the information he gave me to contact him hasn't worked out. And that's Michael Moore, the documentarian. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so um, with our students, it was, it was a difficult process. And when we went to Flint, yeah. they almost boycotted. Really? And not because they didn't want to do it, but they were just afraid. Cause if they do fucking, if, if they do like Hamlet, you know, and someone's playing Hamlet, they go home after a show. But when you're doing, you're portraying someone who might actually be in the audience and you go home to your privilege with your dorm and, and you get drunk with your, with your, with your roommates. And this person who you just portrayed still doesn't have enough money to pay the water bill, still is struggling. There's a lot more responsibility. Yeah. And so um, I thought that was really helpful. And we did three shows. We did our, our, our one in our, mm-hmm. in our theater. And then we did another one in the Duderstadt theater um, just to give people yeah. access to it. And it's on my website. So people and, and people have been sharing it off my website with classes and stuff. And I think last year there was at least 
13 classes that use Flint. Only two of them were theater programs. The other were environmental classes. That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. And like I said, and it's on my website, especially for any educator who might stumble upon it yeah. and want to use it. And like I said, you know, get access because a lot of people in Flint don't even have public transit or don't even have transportation. Yeah. And then the last one, we took it to a community center and we... We brought, you know, minimal props, the costumes and a couple of video things. But the discussion and the community involvement was really intense. And it was just a beautiful experience. And I said, I'm glad our students got to do it in there. And my hope with the rewrites is to really kind of want to send it out is that, you know, they're close to getting over a $600 million settlement. But that's just a drop in the bucket because this community is going to deal with it for generations because we still don't know about what's going to happen with kids who are born. Are they going to have lead in their body? Are they going to be suffering? We're already seeing cognitive uh, issues with kids right now. You know, we don't know what the future generations and who's going to want to fucking come and live in Flint. Right. There's so many other things that are happening. So, um, and the sad thing is that what's happening in Flint is happening all over the country and the common denominator is poor and people of color. And like for Flint, we were actually going to do, uh, a town hall and bring a workshop to a reading in Newark, New Jersey, where they're dealing with the same thing, but then the pandemic hit. Oh, and so we couldn't. Yeah. And so um, one of the characters in the play who's actually a professor at UM, at UM uh, Flint was saying that he didn't think that Flint was the worst one. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Wow. How is that possible? And he says there's at least 3,000 cities that you'll see in the next few years that are going to be other Flints. And, and for example, like in yeah. uh, New Mexico, Arizona, where it's not lead, it's uranium getting close to watershed. So if you think lead is bad for your body, uranium is a whole new. Oh, my God. Because that's where they used to test bombs for the military around World War II. And, and no one's doing shit about this. And even he was thinking, and even take away the issue of class and money, you're talking about right. almost 200-year-old infrastructures. That's meant to, to, you know, so people need to start because it's going to get worse than it, than it gets better. So getting Flint out there and hopefully having Peter's doing it is, is about Flint, obviously, but also telling people this is a, a, a problem that's happening throughout this country. We need to do right. something, you know? Right. That's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, just the amount of, you know, information and intersectionality that I'm sure came across from those interviews. Were the students involved in the interview process as well? No? No, not at all. And it's funny because they wanted to hear some of the tapes. Like, can we listen? I'm like, no. Yeah. I'm not going to copy, you know, your, you know, and I interviewed more than a hundred mm-hmm. people by myself, but I was rejected by yeah. at least four or 500 people. And when you're doing this kind of work. You have to, uh, you have to, you have to acknowledge the no's as much as do the yeses. Cause yeah. I don't want to also cause more trauma. Right. And so, you know, and, and for Flint, one of the great things about Flint was I love the accidental monologues the most. And what I mean by that, it's monologues that weren't like prepared, like, okay, Hey, can we talk about this? It was like someone I met on the street and we have this, you know, this incredible interview. But what I appreciate is that these people woke up that morning, never in a million years, thinking they were going to give up such painful parts of their history and their lives and being vulnerable on that day. They didn't wake up that way, but they did. And so those monologues in particular are the ones that really stand out for me as the artist. You know I mean? Not the observer, just as the artist. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's incredible. I think that, Ethnographic work is some of the most powerful work that you can do, but it's also the most like difficult work because you are working with people's stories and their experiences. And I mean, especially with you handling topics like you were dealing with in 14 and Flint, did you have any, you know, kind of process or models that you were using as like best practices on how to be respectful in this? Nah.
Nah, man, because 14, I didn't really know what the ethnographic play was. I'm just like, I'm just going to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some things I, I might have done differently. Like, yeah. there's one monologue about this racist white woman who's a boutique owner. Oh, yeah. And and that's the only monologue that's 100% verbatim. Yeah. And throughout the play, you kind of get a perspective of the playwright, and which is me. And, you know, at one point she says, don't use this play. I used it anyway. Yeah. I don't think I would have done that again this time. Uh, just because I'd grown as an artist and 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 stuff like that, and so it's just kind of my own thing that I just kind of created for, for myself. But the for the foundation for everything is just being honest and authentic, and and checking my intentionality every day. Yeah, and making sure that I'm doing this kind of art for the right reasons because there's so many people who aren't, and I don't want to be right in that category. I mean, like it's like, like I said for Flint, one of the people I talked to, and her monologues in the story, she was like, you know, so many people come in, other artists. Um, scientists, scholars, and she and she said, you know, it feels like we're just guinea pigs to them. Yeah. That our tragedy is it's going to make their book or their dissertation or and make them famous, but we're still poor and we're still struggling with the lead. And so I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to be seen as one of those people profiteering right. and exploiting their situation. Because if I ever got to the point where I felt like it and I felt the community was thinking about that, then I would have quit. Yeah, because I I know how I wouldn't want that to be done to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever, well, I mean, I can assume what the answer to this question is, but I'm curious to know like specific thoughts regarding it, but have you experienced specific difficulties regarding your work because of the topics that you choose to take on as a writer? I think in TYA, just the the lack of productions. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah, I think so. Just because, like I said, because the gatekeepers are there. And, you know, especially when we're talking, you know, educational system as well, all it takes is one pissed off parent to, to ruin it. Yeah. And so I think just the lack of production, just because of the subject matter, a little, you know, has to a little bit. As I start growing in as, as even, I'm, I'm still growing as, a, as an artist. Um, Always. Some of the, you know, the subject matter that I'm going to be hitting on in the next few, especially in TV, like the mental health one are going to be hard. Yeah. Just as a creator, but also just like, okay, who's going to do this? Right. Who feels that there's, there's, there's a need for this, you know, like with Reimagine, that program I told you with the eight BIPOC theater yeah. connected to writers, um, you know, you get some money and the money is always great because I'm poor. <laughs> but I could give a fuck about the money and all because right. like I said, I'm, I'm dealing with how do I write this subject material in a way that doesn't traumatize yeah. kids in the way to explore it. And then there's a part of me that is going to try. I don't know if it's going to work. And the more I think about it, I don't know if it will, but I'm going to try yeah. That also creating a comic book on stage, a living comic book. Oh, yeah. So that in between scenes, there's a comic book. Because based on my nephew, my nephew, when we're hanging out, he won't shut up. He's a that kind yeah. of kid. But when it's something about his issues, the serious issues, he won't talk. And so he doesn't talk. So not that the comic book would give any more answers. I think it's just comic book just giving us a little bit more clues into the kid. Yeah. You know, but I don't know if structurally it'll work. So that's one of the reasons why I want to play around and get into this and work with a the theater. Like, okay, can we try that? Oh, cool idea. It just doesn't work theatrically. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of different experiments with what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but it's going to be hard. And even if we do it, then like I said, what theaters are going to be brave enough to want to do it? Yeah. Because my goal is like, you know, if a kid sees that, hopefully not triggering, but like thinks that kid looks like me. Right. You know, or that kid looks like my friend. Maybe I should talk to my teacher. Yeah. You know, those, you know, and that's a, that's a difficult line to, to walk on. And like I said, I don't want to fuck it up. Yeah. And so that's why with this plan, any help I could get, I am looking forward to that just so 
we could bounce those off. And, and ultimately, like I said, because BIPOC kids do suffer mental health and we don't hear about it. Yeah. You know, 20, 30 years ago, there weren't any studies being done about kids committing suicide under 10. Now there are. Yeah. You know, and I remember when I was teaching at, at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, that was that was hard. But I remember one of my colleagues, very conservative, very religious female, you wouldn't think she would be like one of my supporters. Yeah. But she did like theater for young audiences. And the way they treated her was horrible. And I remember at one point, one of our colleagues in a meeting said, you know, theater isn't about advocacy. And I'm like, fuck you. It isn't. You know, and and we have to ask theater practitioners realize that it's not just about entertaining audiences. It's also about engaging audiences in dialogue that that represents all the issues we're dealing with this in this country. And and we have to keep on pushing that. We do. We have to we have to tell the powers to be is like we're going to get louder and louder. Yeah. You know, we have to. I don't see any other way, you know. I, yeah, I completely agree with you because we've been doing the same thing for how long and how many changes have happened, yeah. you know? Honestly, I think the most, like, change that we've seen has been recently, and yeah. it hasn't been a lot, yeah. you know? So, kind of on that vein, I guess, what advice might you offer young playwrights who are interested, especially BIPOC playwrights who, you know, want to get their voices and representation out there? Um, To be brave. Yeah. Be brave and be your biggest advocate. You have to be. If yeah. you're not your biggest advocate, who else is going to do that? And and to be brave and to tell the stories you really feel the need you need to tell and not be apologetic for the stories you do tell. Yeah. You know, and and um, and to, like I said, to fight. You know, unfortunately, we have to fight to get our work done mm-hmm. and um, fight harder than white colleagues. And people don't want to hear that. And the people who don't want to acknowledge that, fuck you. Yeah. Um, you know, even I tell my students of color, if any of your uh, any of the other professors say you don't have to work harder, they're either stupid or they're lying to you. And I believe that. And so, yeah, to be like I said, tell your stories, be brave about it, but don't hinder yourself. Don't think people aren't going to get it. Yeah. Because even Lorraine Hainsbury, who wrote A Raisin in the Sun, there's a great quote from her that says, you know, when I finish the plays, I type it up and then I put them all neat on the floor. And then I just stare at the stack of pages and think to myself, no one is going to get this. You know, and you'd be surprised how many people will get it. And and really, like I said, you know, find ways to engage people because, you know, they say there's only eight or seven really original stories. And I agree with that. Yeah. And I have the one friend who's like, why are you always writing about race? I'm like, well, when racism is over, I'll stop writing about it. <laughs> and it really comes to your ability as a as a storyteller, because it's not about talking about the same thing. But how can you use your art to talk about it or explore it through a different perspective that hasn't been shown? Yeah. You know, yeah. that's and that's skill, you know, and so we need yeah. more playwrights and artists. Um, so those, those would be the main things. And but also too self-care, especially as a BIPOC artist, find that community that is going to is going to hold you and challenge you, but always going to love you because this is a rough business, regardless what race or gender you are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for BIPOC, really find that community of, of strength and support because you're going to need it. Yeah. Because we all get to the point every once in a while, even even me, where I'm like, fuck this shit, I'm not going to do it no more. Yeah. And so you want that community who's going to, like I said, hold you, love you, fight with you, fight for you. And that's really important, too. But like I said, but always, like I said, and also, too, don't be afraid to speak up. Yeah. Because we're in a system that that they kind of expects people of, of color to kind of be quiet and be the, the good, you know, fuck that shit. Uh-uh. You know, there's a thing that they said, like, article I remember reading, like, people of faculty of tenure, like, who said, you know, when I get tenured, then I'll speak up. But it's like, no, if you're willing to hold your tongue for six years, then you really we had, had nothing to say in the first place. 
And and too many times, you know, one of the things too, like I said, when I, you know, and I don't know if you recorded or not before we start talking, for the three scholars in my African-American book who were like, are you sure? One of the things we also have to fight off, and I still struggle with it, is imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like, we don't belong. And no, you you belong. You should be asking them if they belong. That's really the reality. Yeah. And so to be strong and then to do those those things, and I think you're going to be all right. It's tough. It's tough, but um, one of my favorite quotes is from Emilio, Emiliano Zapata, and it's like, I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Mm. And you know, I don't want to tell stories that that don't reflect who I am. And when I write something or create something, I want to be able to look in the mirror and, and say, I'm proud of what I did. And I didn't acquiesce when I didn't water it down or dumb it down. Yeah, I love that. Jose, I have so much respect for you. Like, oh, seriously. Man. Back at you, my man. You're freaking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so just a couple more questions for you. Sure. I would love to know how you would like to see our industry change as it starts to come back from the pandemic. Um, like I said, hire people, just start hiring people, yeah. hire, hire, hire people. And let's say continue this movement. But one of the things that I've heard a lot, especially with the zoom is like, we could hire anyone. We're on zoom. Well, that's great. And and once we go back, continue to use zoom as an audience builder, not as a replacement yeah. for BIPOC theater. You know, I am sick of hearing, well, we can't find an Asian actor. Uh, we can't find a, a Latino actor. We can't find a black. No, those days are done. You're not, you're not going to yes. get away with it. Like I said, just for BIPOC theater community to keep up that revolution because theater needs, we need a revolution in theater. Yeah. It's it's simple. And, and we need that revolution to continue. And we need the people who are in these positions who don't get it. We need to find a way of getting, of getting them out. And even with the Children's Theater Foundation of America, one of our goals is within the next three, four years, we really need to to get rid of some people and not necessarily because we don't like them, but there has to be a more equitable board that looks like the field and looks like the yeah, world. Yeah. And so we have to get those people who don't serve our, our, our field. We need to get them out of there. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to call them on that. And we need to invest more in our BIPOC artists, our BIPOC administrators, our BIPOC scholars. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, you can't say, oh, at UT Austin, we have the best program, but people of color can't get in or they mortgage their asses to do so. Yeah. You know? We can't do that anymore. And like I said, for these theaters, build those relationships with the community. Uh, but like I said, it's just keep, let the revolution not end with the pandemic. Yeah. The revolution has to continue until we see that change where diversity isn't something that people are aware of. Diversity. And, and this is where I have an issue, for example, here at Michigan. Mm-hmm. And for tenure, you have to get it's service, teaching and scholarship or creative work. Um, and I've always been African. No, why isn't diversity a part of that? Diversity of professors should be dedicated to diversity if they want to get a tenure fucking job. Yeah. You know, and in some places, like I said, for me, I teach playwriting. It's harder. In your Latin American studies, it's going to be a little bit easier. If you're like teaching violin, like, well, how can I be more diverse? Well, you might not be able to incorporate a curriculum, but you can be on those committees that are working towards diversifying this campus. Shut up and, and saying, no, I, I can't do nothing. Yeah. Diversity should be a tenant of tenure. Yeah. And, but a lot of people don't want that because they know they won't do it. Yeah. And, and I hate that because it's like, you all see diversity as a chore, something extra that you have to do. Diversity is just a part of what is natural to what I do. So we had a, a, someone come in and do like race uh, awareness kind of committees. And the question they would ask, I'm doing all this shit. <laughs> Can I go now? You know, and it's because diversity is, is part of my pedagogy. It's part of my curriculum. Yeah. And automatically, it's just common sense. Yeah. It's that simple. So, and, and calling people out on it and, and not being afraid to call out people on it. Yeah. You have to. 
All right, y'all. Yes, accountability. Uh, Come on. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, there you go. Accountability. Yeah. Even more so now. Yeah. And um, because yeah, if you, if you want those jobs, then you have to really truly understand what those jobs entail. And if you don't, get the fuck out. Yeah. Well, I think that U of M is really lucky to have somebody like you. Uh, I really do. Higher education itself is lucky to have, you know, somebody like you. Just somebody amazing who is not afraid to disrupt for all the right reasons and, you know, is going to help open the door for the future generations. We need to. We can't be. You can't be doing this and and be selfish. Yeah. And a lot of the change that we need isn't going to be done in my lifetime. Yeah. And so we, as as for an election, I'm old. So it's us about planting those seeds so that the people behind us continue. Yeah. Because what we want isn't going to happen in the entirety of our lifetime. But hopefully, you know, we're we're you know we're thinking of those future generations, and that's the work we're really doing. We're planting. My generation needs to plant the seeds. Yeah. But it's your generation and the others past you who need to grow those seeds. Yeah, totally. So for my last question, sure. what is something significant that theater has taught you about life? I think it's, it's really simple. It's like that our stories matter. Yeah. You know, when we when we're off of this planet, what is that legacy that we left? My community, you know, the storytellers have been around for generations and it's, it's about passing the, the, the wand, for example. But I, and so like I said, just that our stories matter, yeah. you know, because too because in most of the world, we're told that our stories don't matter, that our voices don't matter. And theater is one of those beautiful things that, that, that tells us, yeah, your voice does matter. Your voice is heard. Your voice is beautiful. Don't just talk, but sing. And so for me, I think that would be the main thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. That makes you think of, uh, have you read Audre Lorde's Poetry is Not a Luxury? No, I, I'll check it oh out. Oh, God, yeah. It's like a just a quick little essay that she wrote, and it's it talks about, you know, the importance of your voice and the importance of poetry and just the power of story, and it's just it's amazing. Yeah, well, I also think that theater, especially TYA theater, has the ability to make us feel a little less lonely in this big-ass world. Yes, yeah. and especially yeah. during this time of isolation, who couldn't use that? <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> 100%, dude. So do you have any final thoughts that you want to share about playwriting or TYA or theater? Um, I just like said, just for, if anyone's here listening, especially if you're BIPOC, I mean, everyone, I don't want to say just BIPOC, but in particular, BIPOC is just yeah. be brave, tell those stories. I want to see them. I'm not just a writer. I'm also an audience member. Yeah. So I want to be in those theaters, chat, you know, clapping and, and hearing your stories and, and feeling connected to you. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jose, for sharing no your problem, time man. and your thoughts and your perspective. I'm about to go on too many tangents. So. Oh, my God. No, it's all good. It's great. Everything you had to say needs to be said. It needs to be shared. You know, it needs to be amplified. Totally. All right, man. Sounds good, dude. Jose Casas, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking some time to share your experiences with me and the listeners of this podcast. I literally cannot thank you enough because I appreciate your voice and I appreciate what you got to say because it's so important and it's so needed. So thank you for being you and thank you for doing what you do. If you want to know more about Jose, his scripts, or the books that he's currently working on, visit brownplaywright.com. I'll also have it linked in the show notes. And thank you for your support of life in theater. From the bottom of my heart, Thank you. You are creative, valuable, and loved. And don't you forget it, okay? 
Remember that you can always chat with me and other listeners about the show or your own projects by following Life in Theater on Facebook or Instagram at Life in Theater Podcast. Yay! Earlier, I said that I would be doing something special for my Patreon subscribers, and I intend to do just that. So... Patreon subscribers, congratulations! You have been automatically entered into an exclusive giveaway for you and you only. From now until the next episode airs in two weeks, all of the Life in Theater Patreon subscribers will be entered into a giveaway to win an exclusive Life in Theater mug! That's right, friends. All you have to do is be subscribed and listen to the next episode to find out if you won. So, if you aren't subscribed to the Patreon and would like to get in on this giveaway, now's the best time that you could possibly subscribe. There's literally never going to be a better time. So, head over to patreon.com forward slash life in theater to subscribe today. I like to end every podcast episode with a ghost like quote. Ghost lights have a long history with theater and they're still used on Broadway and in theaters all across the world to help the last few stragglers see their way out of a dark theater at the end of the night. And I hope this quote helps to light your path. The true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. Nelson Henderson Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Life in Theater. We'll be back in two weeks with another riveting episode, friends. Bye now.